if the shoe fits, it's become a common, fairly common expression, figure of speech in our culture. You know, the original expression was if the cap fits. But many people think that um, the Cinderella story kind of helped change that expression. And while Disney didn't originate the story Cinderella, if you've seen the old Disney Cinderella movie, it's hard to forget that one just iconic uh, scene where the Grand Duke, you know, he's going throughout all the kingdom trying to find who's, uh, trying to find the maiden whose foot will fit the slipper. And he ends up at Cinderella's house, and, and he's there, and, and he tries on the slipper on the two evil stepsisters, and of course, the, as hard as they try, the slipper just doesn't fit. And he asks, is this everyone at the house? And the evil stepmother says, yes, this is everyone. And then the music begins to change. And Cinderella emerges at the top of the staircase in her rags. You know, all the stepsisters, they wore fine gowns and everything, but Cinderella emerges in her in her rags and says, may I try on the slipper? And the Grand Duke, he's so excited, and his assistant, he comes running over with the the glass slipper on the pillow so that Cinderella can try it on. And as he's running, the evil stepmother sticks out her cane, and he trips, and you see the glass slipper flying through the air, and then it crashes on the floor, and it shatters in a million pieces. And the music changes again because you know now, oh no, the prince will never find out the identity of his true princess. And the evil stepmother, she's smiling. The grand duke, he is inconsolable just on the floor with the pieces of broken glass. And Cinderella, she tries to interject And she says, but would it help if? And he says, no, no, no. And he's waving his arms. No, nothing could ever help now. But she persisted and said, but I have the other slipper. And then the music changes again, you know, the way Disney tells the story. And your heart just fills with excitement again because you know, and sure enough, the slipper fits. The shoe fits. At this point, in the book of Ruth, we know that Boaz and Ruth, they just fit together. They just belong together. They've declared their love for one another at midnight on that threshing floor. And while Ruth's cloak, you know, it never transformed back into some kind of extravagant gown or back into some kind of uh, dirty rags and you know, at midnight, her, she didn't have a carriage that just turned into a pumpkin. But at midnight, something did happen. At midnight, she discovered that there is a closer relative, that there is a nearer kinsman redeemer, that Boaz is not the first in line to have Ruth's hand. I mean, Disney were telling this story. This is where the music would change again, and your heart would plummet. Fear, worry, anxiety begins to creep in because you sense, oh no, maybe Ruth and Boaz are not going to end up together after all. And we know that Ruth belongs with her prince. And so as we enter our final two weeks of this series that we've been going through, as we just get to watch what happens when a fairy tale comes true, uh, this, this morning we see Boaz win his bride. So go ahead, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, and we'll begin in verses 1 through 4. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 4. You know, centuries before Cinderella's love story was 
sealed with a slipper, there was this real-life fairy tale of Ruth, and her love story, her remarkable real-life love story, will be sealed with a slipper as well. The music will change again. But before it changes to, you know, these happy tunes, it gets a little darker first. It gets a little more tragic first. And throughout this scene, we just see a few snapshots of joy. You know, the Christian is marked by their joy. God gives a joy unshakable, a joy that never fades regardless of any circumstance or anything that's going on in life. It is a joy unshakable that never fades. And in this scene, we get to see just a few glimpses of how that joy works. Uh, The world reads this story and says, you know, this is magical. But the church reads it and we just say, that's God. That's how our God works. So you got to see it. Let's go ahead and look. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So you have, just to picture this scene with me for a moment, just to, just to see all that's happening, okay? Boaz, he gets to the city gate. And in the city gate, you know, this is, this is actually just an open area at the beginning of the city, at the kind of the, uh, the central location of the city. It, it, the city gate is the entrance. It's, it's the place where business took place. It's the place where transactions happened, where things were made legal, where things were made official. This is what the city gate refers to. It's not merely just a gate. I mean, this is where the action happens. This is where important matters are discussed and civic judgments and legal decisions are made. This is where policies are, are discussed and put into action. And so whatever was decided at the city gate, that was the final word. That was the highest authority. You know, this background, understanding this kind of gives a little bit of insight to Jesus' words when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, what Jesus is saying is that hell can make all the plans and hell can have all the policies that hell wants to have, but it doesn't really matter because all of the decisions that hell makes, uh, it will never overcome, it will never prevail against the policies and the action that I have put in place in the building of my church. Nothing can overpower the church that I am building. And so we just mentioned a few minutes ago that we're starting, uh, launching into a new series in just a couple weeks on blueprints of a healthy church and what a transformational church looks like. And, And this is what Jesus is talking about. He demonstrates just how healthy, how indestructible, how transformational the church will be. So it's going to be an exciting study through the book of Acts. But here in the town of Bethlehem, 
there's Boaz, and he's sitting at the city gates, and behold, it just so happened that this closer relative walked by. You know, here, here it is again, and we, we've said it before, the narrator, he constantly or repeatedly kind of introduces this phrase, and behold, or and it just so happened. What he's doing is just, he's just dripping with sarcasm to show us that no, it's God's sovereign hand, it's on display throughout this love story. The life is not just a series of chances. It's the hand of God working often in unforeseen ways to accomplish his glory. And that's what's happening here. Boaz, he's sitting on the, at the city gates, and it just so happened that this man walks by, this closer redeemer. And Boaz, he gets so excited. He's so excited and because he wants to settle this matter quickly. And he says to his friend, hey, just sit down. Now, some read this and say, you know, Boaz, he's just kind of buttering him up. You know, he's ready to really uh, swindle him and, and stick it to him. But, you know, we've, we've been with Boaz enough by now to know that Boaz is just, he just has this type of, has this type of character. This is just the kind of man that Boaz is, that he's going to speak directly to the man. He's, he probably is a friend. He's a relative. He's, he's, so he treats him with respect. At the same time, Boaz is very strategic, and we're going we're gonna to see just how strategic Boaz is. But Boaz and this relative, they're sitting at the city gates, and Boaz invites the elders to sit down at the gates as well. And at that time, in order to have a legal quorum, in order to make matters official, in order for th- something to be decided rightly and justly, you had to have a minimum of 10 elders, Okay, you had, otherwise, it just wasn't legal. It wasn't binding. And so it seems as if as soon as Boaz gets to 10, you know, that's good. He's not looking for 12 or any more than 10. He's got his 10, and he says, all right, this can be official. Let's get to work. And so he has his 10 there, and they stop. And here is where the strategy of Boaz begins to take place. He has this relative, and he says to this relative, hey, I thought you should know that you remember our, our relative Naomi, the one who was married to Elimelech. Well, he died. And Naomi, she has this piece of land that she is selling that she needs to be redeemed. And I wanted to tell you, you know, you know, in front of the elders here, so that you can redeem the land, that you can purchase the land. You can buy back the land if you'd like because you're the next in line. And you're reading that and you're seeing that and you see, wow, Boaz, I mean, he's cool as a cucumber, you know, his future with Ruth is hanging on the line here. It's riding on this discussion right now. I mean, if that were me, I'm telling you, I would be sweating bullets. It would be written all over my face that when this, as I'm talking to this guy, he would know, okay, Steve is up to something. You know, it was just the other day, Steph had made some kind of special, like, treat for herself, and I discovered it in the refrigerator, you know? And I might have snuck a few bites, and she was wondering if maybe it was one of the kids, and she comes downstairs, and she sees my face, and she knew right away. I mean, I just had guilty plastered all over my face, you know? Um, but Boaz, he's, he's cool. He's collected. He's, he's calm. And he's talking to this relative, but inside, you've got to know that his heart is racing. I mean, you've, you've got to know that his, his heart's just beating a million miles an hour, and we've all been there, haven't we? I mean, you've all been in that situation where on the outside, you know, you're trying to act as if you've got things together, but on the inside, man, your heart is beating, your heart is racing, you're anxious, you know, maybe it's uh, when, you're, when, when you proposed, 
Maybe, maybe you have a big test that you're taking and you just want to pass. Maybe it's a job interview and it's a job you really want. And you're trying to stay cool and calm as you have that job interview. Maybe you've got to give up, get up and give some kind of public speech in front of a big crowd of people. You know, whatever it is, you try your best to stay cool, calm, collected on the outside. But on the inside, you're saying, please, please, please let her say yes. Please, please, please let me get this job. Let, let me pass this test. Let, let me just get through this speech. On the outside, you're trying to act like you've got it all together, but on the inside, your heart is racing, your heart is beating, and you can't wait till the ordeal is over so that you can just get alone and exhale. And I, I bet, if I had to wager, I, I bet Boaz spoke calmly on the outside, but inside his stomach is doing flips because he's saying, please don't let him redeem Ruth. Please let her be mine. She is my princess. I can't lose her. And after Boaz, he tells the relative that Naomi's uh, property is eligible to be redeemed. The man in front of the elders of the people right there at the city gates where it's legal, where it will be binding, he says, I will redeem it. And just like that Cinderella story when the glass slipper goes flying through the air and shatters on the ground in a million pieces, your heart begins to sink as you read those words. Because you're saying, no, Ruth can't go with this guy. Ruth belongs to Boaz. This, this can't be happening. He can't be the one to redeem it. But of course, it only makes sense that the man would jump up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it. I, I would take that piece of property. I'll work it. I'll, I'll plant crops there. You know, this could be a valuable business opportunity for me. I, it could be very lucrative. And so, of course, he jumps up and he says, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it. But Boaz, he's left out some crucial information here. He hasn't given the man all of the details just yet. But Boaz, I think Boaz knew he would say yes to the land. I think it's why he starts with the land and not with the Moabite widow. Have you ever had somebody ask you the question or you ask the question to them, okay, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? You know, when everybody, unless you're just a glutton for punishment, you always say, just give me the bad news first. Right? Because then you know, okay, at least there's good news coming. And however bad the bad news is, at least the good news, at least on some level, will help to compensate for the bad news. So unless you're just a real glutton for punishment, you always say, give me the bad news first. Because then you got good news coming. But Boaz, he strategically starts with the good news. He says, hey, there's this property you can redeem. He leaves out what is going to be perceived as the bad news because he hopes this next set of news will overwhelm all of the good news that he's just told this relative. I want you to see what happens. Let's look at it. Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the man, he's, he's all excited because he thinks he's going to acquire this piece of property. And Boaz, he eliminates his enthusiasm right away. He says, hey, the day that you acquire the field, you also acquire or you must acquire Ruth, the Moabite. See, there's another obligation to this, to this deal. You must acquire Ruth, the Moabitess. And, you know, he, and he, I bet he just laid down, the, you know, the Moabitess. He just wants to stick that right in there. You don't want to miss where this woman's from. You know, our ancient enemies from Moab? Yeah, that's where she's from. And this is who you're going to be acquiring. And you're going to have to take her to be your wife. She is included in the deal. She is part of the deal. You must redeem her as well. She is the widow of the dead, and you must take her to perpetuate the inheritance of the dead. In other words, you have to have a child with her, and then when he grows up and he is of legal age, then you must give the land to him. So here comes all of the bad news, right? From the perspective of the other relative, he's looking at this, and you can imagine Boaz, he's just sitting, you know, hey, oh, that's great, you want the land. That's great. Oh, I almost forgot to tell you. There's this widow, and she's a part of the deal here, okay? And she's from Moab. You've got to take her as well and have a, have a son with her. And then when he grows up, you know that piece of land that you're so excited about? You just got to give it right back. And that guy, just as soon as he said yes before, he stands up. Oh, you know, on second thought... Um, this just isn't going to work, you know. Maybe my finances, maybe I hadn't, uh, wasn't as confident as them as I, as I originally thought I was. You know, I, I don't know. I've got this inheritance I need to provide for my family that I've already have, and so this just isn't going to work. I cannot agree to the terms of this deal. The, the deal looked so sweet just a few moments earlier, but it turned sour quickly. Because after all, who would do such a thing? I mean, in order to be a kinsman redeemer, you remember from a couple weeks ago that one of the qualifications to be a kinsman redeemer is you had to be willing. You, you didn't have to do this. It wasn't like an involuntary thing where you are forced to or you are legally binded to. One of the obligations, one of the responsibilities, qualifications to be a kinsman redeemer was you had to be willing. You had to be willing to do it. And who would be willing to do this? Well, only the prince who loves this Moabite widow, of course, right? No, no one else would. The, the relative says, oh, wait, you know, on second thought, I can't be the kinsman redeemer. This might jeopardize my own financial standing. I want to be able to leave an inheritance to my family. This deal might prevent me from doing that. And, you know, Boaz, if you really still want to go through it, if you want to redeem it, you go ahead and redeem it. And you know, Boaz on the inside, he's just rejoicing. He's jumping up and down because here it is. This is where Boaz wins his bride. He doesn't care about the land. See, that might have been the sweet spot of the deal for this relative. But for Boaz, the prize is Ruth. And he's worked hard and he's worked with the utmost integrity. You know, these were the selfish days. These were the evil days uh, of the judges when people just did what was right in their own eyes, but not Boaz. He, he went to this man 
rightly. He presented all the information. Yeah, he did it strategically, but he gave him all the information that he needed to have. You know, he could have created a loophole. He could have done something else, but he didn't. And he made sure that this was a legally binding, just decision in front of the 10 elders, that this was going to be ratified right away. He gave the man who was first in line the option of redeeming Ruth, and the man declined, and so he did things right. There's this principle here, and it's that God enjoys working in conjunction with our obedience. That God enjoys working in conjunction with our obedience. You know, sometimes you'll hear a desperate prayer like, oh God, you know, I I just didn't study for this test. Can you help me pass anyway? Or God, you know, I'm supposed to teach this Sunday school class and, you know, I didn't really study. I didn't really prepare last night. Can you just kind of show up and make it good anyway? And sometimes you'll hear the testimony from Uh, I don't know, like a musician or somebody, you know, I I never really practiced or anything. I was just sitting there and God just gave me this song. And you know what? Sometimes God does things like that. Sometimes he does just kind of show up and we don't prepare and it still comes out really good. Sometimes we don't study for a test and God just, he just kind of brings to mind something that we had read previously and were able to pass. Sometimes he does just give us a song and and it comes out well, but One of the things that you see throughout the story of Scripture is that while it is true that God can work in spite of us, that he thoroughly enjoys working in conjunction with us. That that is, is the faithful people who do what God has asked them to do, who put in the hard work, who study. I mean, this is Boaz. He's working hard. He's doing things right. He's having the difficult conversations because they are the right conversations to be had. And God enjoys working in conjunction with our obedience. And there's a difference that we experience when we work with God as opposed to just begging God to show up. When, when, when God works in spite of us, you know, what we often feel is relief. Whew, I'm just glad I passed. I'm just glad that went okay. I'm just glad that worked out. But when he works in conjunction with our obedience, there's joy. No matter how things turn out, because you know you did things right, and there's joy there. Don't don't, don't misunderstand me to say that when you work and you are obedient and you work in conjunction with God, that God always makes things right. That's not true at all. I mean, we read plenty of testimonies in Scripture of men like Job and Stephen and Paul, who because, it is precisely because of their obedience that they suffer. It is because they were good and moral and they did things right that they experienced tragedy in their lives. But God is always working to bring that tragedy back around for his glory. God is not some God of karma who just, you do well, all right, you're blessed. You don't do well, all right, you're cursed. God doesn't work like that. He's working in ways that sometimes don't make sense to us, but one day they will. Because we'll see how it all fits together and how how he works this all together for our good and for his glory. But in the meantime, what we see is this principle at work that when we are obedient, that God enjoys working in conjunction with that obedience. See, what he's doing is he's proving to a watching world that sometimes we suffer because of our obedience, because he's proving to a watching world that, hey, we don't love God simply because he blesses us. We love God simply because of who he is and he's worthy of our love. And this is a point that he makes through the obedience of his saints. But but look at this. Boaz understands 
that God's designed life. And since God is the designer of life, that he knows the standards, he's put standards in place that make life work best. And so he lives an upright life, and he enjoys uh, working in conjunction with God and God working in conjunction with Boaz. And, and I want you to see how this legal agreement takes place as Boaz wins his bride. Look at uh, verses 7 through 12. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming up into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. And be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, so this is sure different than any kind of marriage ceremony uh, that you see today. You know, the, the, the relative, he removes his sandal and he gives it to Boaz and he says, you be the redeemer. During those times, during these ancient times, shoes and feet, they symbolized authority and ownership and possession. So this is how uh, the Lord gave uh, uh, humanity the right over creation. He said, or or David said, the psalmist said, um, you, God, have put all things under his feet. And the people of Israel, they they were later told by the Lord in Deuteronomy that every place that the sole of your foot treads shall be your inheritance. And so this is how ownership, this is how possession, this symbolized this, sandals, feet, that kind of thing. And so when the relative removes his sandal and gives it to Boaz, it was a symbol that he would not own or possess the land, that he would not own or possess Ruth. He was transferring the right of redemption to Boaz. He was surrendering his legal right to redeem Ruth. He's saying, Boaz, hey, you can walk in my sandals. You can have my rights. I think the shoe fits you a little better than it fits me. And Boaz, he doesn't waste any time. He, he wants the elders of the city to ratify this agreement right then and there. And so he said, hey, get this in the minutes, okay? We've got a legal quorum here. I don't want anybody to miss it. I am taking this responsibility. I am redeeming the land. I am redeeming Ruth. You know, he's not waiting around. He doesn't want the other relative to ever have a moment to change his mind. He's getting this taken care of immediately because Boaz will win his bride. You know, the unnamed relative, uh, he didn't want Ruth. He, he thought Ruth would tarnish his reputation, that to acquire Ruth, that, that would be a drain on him financially. 
This would be too much trouble to go to the, all this work to redeem this Moabite woman. She is an enemy after all. And it isn't worth going through the process for redemption for an enemy. You know, I'm sure anyone looking at the state of humanity outside of Christ would say, these people, they're not worth redeeming. That in order to redeem these people, this would be a stain on my reputation. That the price of redemption for them would be too costly. It would be too much trouble. But God, in his love, when he saw humanity at odds with him, at odds with the standards that he had put in place, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he gave a redemption. His reputation was not tarnished. His reputation was not stained by redeeming humanity. He wasn't made unclean. He paid the most costly price you could ever pay. He gave his life. He he went to all the trouble of becoming man. And it wasn't Jesus who was stained. It was humanity who was washed clean. It wasn't Boaz who was stained. It was Ruth who was redeemed. The prince has rescued his princess. And the people of the town, you, you see the response. They're there at the city gates, and they're, they're witnessing what's happening. They know who Boaz is redeeming, and they're not criticizing Boaz. They're rejoicing with him. See, this is the next principle. Celebrate with rejoicing people. Celebrate with rejoicing people. Paul puts it this way in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice. See, th- th- there's an amazing thing that takes place in the family of God. That no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how rough, that you are able to rejoice with the one who is rejoicing. You, you could be employed at a job for, you know, 20 years, and you could always be aiming to get that promotion, and the promotion just never comes. And then there's a brother or sister in Christ, and he's only been there a year. And after one year, he gets the promotion. But what happens in the family of God is the family of God doesn't look at themselves and say, oh, woe is me. I've been working so hard for that promotion and I never got it. No, what happens in the family of God is we rejoice with that brother and sister as if we were the one who got the promotion. We say, oh, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. I'm so thrilled for you because the family of God doesn't focus on self. It focuses on the family. This is what happens. We're able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And in that rejoicing comes joy for ourselves. And that brings joy when you're able to celebrate with those who are rejoicing. Boaz is rejoicing because he is one Ruth. And now the crowd's there. And you know that some of them, they've probably lost spouses. You know, some of them, they're probably single, always wanting to be married. But what do they do? They rejoice with Boaz. And in that rejoicing brings joy to themselves. But the question may be asked today is, you know, what did Boaz see in Ruth anyway? You know, and why was it wrong for Malon to marry Ruth because Ruth was a Moabite, but it's okay for Boaz to marry Ruth even though Ruth is a Moabite. Well, see, I believe that Boaz trusted Ruth's commitment to the one true God, that he trusted that she hadn't converted to faith based on 
any kind of advancement of uh, position or money or some type of protection or that she would achieve some kind of advantage by, by trusting in God. In fact, turning to God for Ruth meant that she was turning away from the most obvious security that the world had to offer her. That, and, and I think Boaz, he trusted her testimony that Ruth had been adopted into God's family, and as a result of being adopted into God's family, she was eligible to marry. In fact, it was the right thing to do, the honorable thing to do, the good thing to do when he sees her testimony. And furthermore, I think that Ruth might have reminded Boaz of someone. See, Boaz, he already knew the testimony of another Gentile woman who had left her country, her customs, and her idols to follow the one true God. I think Boaz, he might have remembered the testimony of his own mother, a Gentile who had married a Jewish man named Salmon. And they both are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And now Boaz, he's willing to do the very same thing that his father had done years before. He's willing to marry a Gentile, an enemy Gentile, who has been adopted into the family of God and now is welcomed a part of the family. Boaz, he's not uneasy about Ruth's past because he had heard the testimony of his own mom, Rahab, and he knew that she had a past. But he knew that through Rahab's past, the gratitude that she felt for God's grace regarding her future. And it just so happened, you know, behold, Boaz had a Gentile mom named Rahab. And Boaz's heart, he sees the potential, the potential of Ruth because he had already seen the faith of his own mom. He knows a woman who has been redeemed when he sees one. Jesus Christ, he still redeems sinners today. And his name is not tarnished because of that. His name is not stained because of that. He doesn't look at it and say, this was too costly, this was too much trouble. No, Jesus, he makes sinners a part of his bridal party, members of his family, and then he uses them as testimonies of his grace of what his grace can do. See, this is what happens when the shoe fits and you're adopted into the family of God. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be a part of your family. God, we thank you for adopting us and for using us to be uh, just living examples, living testimonies of your grace and what your grace can do. So God, help us to, to demonstrate that well. Help us to, to live with the type of joy that you've called us to live. And, and we do that by, by being obedient to you, by, by looking at the standards that you've put in place and then saying, God, I, I want to follow those. I, I want to live life the way that you've designed them to be, to be lived. And God, beyond that, that, that we're able to, to celebrate with those who are rejoicing regardless of what's going on in our life, because we're part of a family, and family celebrates for one another. And so, God, thank you that we are amongst people, brothers and sisters, who we can rejoice and celebrate with. God, help us to celebrate well this week as we demonstrate your grace to those in our community. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.